Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to another episode of So I Married a Horror Fan. This is episode number 54, and it is the last one for the year 2021. As always, I am one of your hosts, Les Simon. And I am Lee. I realised I just said my name and it sounded like Les Seaman. Les Seaman. I am French sperm. <laughs> yes. Cool. And with that, we are off to the races. <laughs> uh, we are rounding out December with our final Christmassy adventure. And today... It is prescient that it's Thursday and it's garbage day because we're doing Silent Night, Deadly Night. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, we're not. no, we're not. No, we're not. We had thought about it. We did. We did. Do you remember when it was on the list? It was. Did we replace it with Krampus? Oh no, you replaced it with Better Watch Out. No, we replaced it with Gremlins. Oh, did we? Yeah, because it was going to be the. So Gremlins was the first episode that was going to be Silent Night, Deadly Night, and then the other three have remained untampered with. <sighs> so yeah, today we are covering. The Nightmare Before Christmas. Although technically... It's the Nightmare After Christmas. This is good, yeah. <laughs> this is going out in two days. This is, well, it's going out a day after Boxing Day. So it's been on the 27th. Like, I've just realised this. Boxing Day. Is that a worldwide thing? I think... Mm. Does, does everywhere celebrate Boxing Day? I don't know. Because like, I know that America, they don't close retail on Christmas Day. Like they still Do they have not? no. They the cinemas and stuff are still open on what? Christmas Day. That's outrageous. Because um, they have movies come out on Christmas Day. So yes. I just wondered because if they don't close down for Christmas. Yay. Like, do they really celebrate Boxing Day? Because I know over here in the UK, Boxing Day is like a massive thing. A national holiday. So look. Um, no, it's only um, observed by the Commonwealth. Oh. <clears throat> so America don't celebrate it then? Nope. That's really interesting. So Commonwealth, that means like the UK, Ireland, British Australia. British Empire. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I've always wondered because like America never seemed to make a big thing about it. So, so Australia, Canada... Hong Kong, Ireland, New Zealand, Nigeria, Scotland, Singapore, South Africa, Trinidad and Tobago, the UK, Bermuda and Massachusetts. What, Boston? I'm assuming so. <laughs> well, yeah, they have a big Irish no, contingent, no, don't they? Yeah, the Commonwealth of Massachusetts of New England. So apparently one state, one singular state mm. celebrates fucking <laughs> Fucking hell. The other 51 are like, fuck off. Is it 52 states? Yeah. The other 51 are like, fuck off. And Massachusetts is like, we'll take an extra rank holiday, thank you. Yeah, because like, I've heard, I have, a, we, I on my personal account, have a few followers from America who have said that they'll be like working in hospitality. Oh, it's not an employee holiday. On Christmas Day. Yeah, no. So, uh, there you go. Because I've always found... faces that celebrate Boxing Day. Like, I've always found it bonkers when Americans are like, yeah, man, I've got gift cards. I'm going to the AMC and I'm going to watch fucking Spider-Man on Christmas Day. And I'm like, you mo- you, mo- what? Like, like, you, you motherfuckers leave the house at We Christmas? don't leave the house. Literally, literally, Christmas Day in England is you wake up, you have Bucks Fizz, mm-hmm. which is, for anyone who's not English, a mimosa. Mm-hmm. Um, that's how we start our day in England. I actually, I actually <laughs> saw a meme the other day and it was on one of these Huns websites. So for anyone in America that doesn't know what a Hun is... 
I guess the best way to describe it is someone like Paris Hilton. Like a socialite. Yeah, like um I literally saw a meme. It was so it was somebody I think they posted it on like an English so and they basically said, me at 8am on Christmas Day. And it was Chris Jericho going, ooh, a little bit of the bubbly. <laughs> I was just like, yeah. Like, it's socially acceptable to oh, get yeah, you pissed get up. You in have the morning. Mimosas. We don't have orange juice. I have bubbly, but I don't have orange juice. So I can't have a um, fucking Bucks Fizz. That makes me sad. A little bit of the bubbly. A little bit of the bubbly. Actually, no, I've got a bottle of Bucks Fizz in the cupboard. <laughs> uh, la. Um... Yeah, so we start our day with like box fears, and normally in my household, a bacon sandwich, and you open presents. And then basically, someone will start cooking the Christmas dinner, and the rest of you will lounge around the living room yeah. in your pajamas. Preferably pajamas you have been bought specifically for Christmas and then, Day. And then, like, all of the men will go to, to the, pub. the pub, and then all of the women will do the clean up. And, and this isn't us being sexist, no, this, this is, is just like generally like what happens in like a Apart UK from household. One year, I remember we switched roles, and my stepdad stayed home and cooked Christmas dinner, and me and my mum went to the pub, and he burned the Christmas dinner. I think, I think last year was a particularly <laughs> disappointing Christmas, because we sat and watched... Uh, we cooked dinner, which was nice because mm-hmm. we had that. We had a really nice Christmas. We dinner. We did. We had a really nice Christmas. Dinner. And then, so it was but the then, first time I ever made Christmas dinner for you. For uh, you. But then we watched Wonder Woman '84, um, and yeah. like it was, it was it dreadful. Was dreadful. It was awful. But yeah, so you're literally lounged on the sofa. Um, as a kid, they used to put pantos on telly mm-hmm. so you could watch it. So yeah, I'd it was like a live it. recording. It of was like... normally either Aladdin, mm-hmm. Cinderella, Snow White. No. Or I think James and the Gi- James and the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk. Jack and the Beanstalk. And one of them had fucking what's his face in it? Ed Miliband? No. <laughs> yeah, had Ed Miliband. No, he played Aladdin. I can't think he's a comedian. Long hair. Oh, Ed Byrne. Ed Byrne. Mm, yes. The like Irish guy. Yeah, I think yeah. it's Ed Byrne. Yeah, it's Ed Byrne. And he, I think it was Aladdin. He played Aladdin. And yeah, so it would be a live recording of one from like in the 90s, like years and years ago. They showed the same two. They'd alternate them each Christmas. Yeah. And we sit and do that. And that's basically with Christmas Day. Like you don't leave your house unless you're going to the pub. Yeah. And the weird, like the weird thing I always find about Christmas is like, so in the UK where we have a lot of bank holidays, so like national holidays. We love holidays, a bank holiday. I, growing up, <clears throat> and I always say this, these are the two things that I always associate with bank holidays in the UK. Is you would always have a James Bond movie on, mm-hmm. or you would always have a Carry On movie on, or multiple all in one row, and yeah. grow to a hatred of. And it's like films. it's kind of like at Christmas they have like a selection of movies or like specials that they wheel out every single year. So like you're all, you're always guaranteed to see like the Santa Claus, mm-hmm. the Wizard of Oz, the Sound of Music, like Miracle on Thirty Fourth Street, one of the Home Alone movies, mm-hmm. like. Yeah. Uh, Elf. Elf. Because Elf's now like a... Elf's nearly 20 years old. Jesus. But it's like a, and then there's the Queen's speech. Yeah. Or if you don't want to listen to that, there's the alternate speech on Channel 4. Yeah. And then they roll out stuff like Wallace and Gromit, The Wrong Trousers. Yeah. Then every soap has like a... a Christmas a Day Christmas special. Dinner. Someone always dies. Like there's yeah. always like there's always like a, a fire or a road... Was the one year they did... It was at EastEnders and they did it live. Yeah. And one of... And they would like... We knew somebody was going to die, but because it wasn't pre-recorded, 
they literally nobody knew who was dying yeah, until they, they died. They didn't want leaks to get out. Yeah, and they but fell yeah. off the side of the Queen Vic. Like Christmas specials for soaps. Yeah, over here are always really dramatic and really depressing. Everyone's yeah. like, "Hey man, peace on earth, Feliz Navidad," and then someone's like, "Oi, you fucking slag! I will fucking kill you!" And then yeah. someone gets shot. Or stabbed Without or run swearing, over. Because they're daytime TV shows. I mean, I don't know, man. I don't know. Danny Dyer's Danny brought, Dyer's Danny, Danny brought an edge. Um, but yeah, I, I would hate to be an American listening to this right yeah. now. Like, they're like, who the fuck is Danny Dyer? Who's what Danny the fuck Dyer? is the Queen Vic? Um, but yeah, so there's a Doctor Who of... Christmas special on always. I don't know. If Not this year. New Year's Day, isn't it? New this Year's year? Day now. Yeah. Um, yeah, there's like a, normally there's a Dancing with the Stars. I think it's got a Christmas. Not Dancing with the Stars. We don't call it over here. Uh, um, Strictly, Come, Strictly Come, Dancing. Come Dancing has got a Christmas special this year. They have like Christmas special game shows. Yeah. And then basically it's a bit of a in-between time after that. Nobody really knows what day it is because yeah. we don't particularly leave the house. We just gorge ourselves on leftover Christmas food. Yeah. Until Big Fat Quiz of the Year happens. Mm-hmm. And then we're like, oh, it's the new year now. We can go back to living a normal life. Yeah. Like the, the <laughs> period between Christmas and New Year is so weird. Because literally, especially if you've got time off. Yeah, I'm working, so it's not so bad. I go so, back on like the 27th. Yeah. No, the 29th. Because like, well, we've got two extra bank holidays because Christmas falls on You kind of sit there and you go, I don't know what day it is. It, nobody's really eating properly. Like you'll get up in the morning and you'll just have like trifle for breakfast. <laughs> yeah. And then you'll Left have over like... Leftover Yeah, you'll have like some peanuts and a gammon sandwich for like lunch. And then dinner is like just whatever fucking buffet food you've got in the cupboard. Pretty much. And that's literally how people live for like two weeks. For like two weeks. Everyone just kind of, it's whatever's in the cupboard so you don't have to put effort in. Everybody like fucks off their like sleeping pattern. They're like, don't have to get off of work for five days. I'm going to stay up till three o'clock in the morning. I mean, you do that anyway. (laughs) I mean, true. But Um, yeah, Christmas is a weird time. time. Especially in the UK. Definitely. We can't speak internationally. But yeah, so we by the time this is released, we've just we've just come off of our Christmas high. We've done all of our presents. Everyone got everything they wished for. We're hoping. Wait, oh, I don't fucking know. No. One of Simon's presents arrived today in the biggest box humanly possible. The box is like it's like a fucking four foot box, isn't it? Yeah, I'm scared. Like I'm <laughs> like. I'm scared. I saw those Chucky dolls that they sent out for the like release of the TV series, <laughs> and they came in boxes that were about that big. Every time I walk past that box, because it's in our spare... So the room we record in is in our attic, and we have a spare room down underneath it. And every time I walk up here, because this is where I work, I have to come and walk past this fucking box. And I'm like, I don't know what's in this box, but I'm scared. But yeah, so that was your last Christmas present that arrived also, today. Also, you told me, yeah, because we're recording this on the 23rd, so you told me that I could carry that box any way I wanted to. Yeah. How do you know that what is there isn't upside down? Huh? I'm not telling you. No, I'm just saying, like, you are. You told me it to put the matter. box up. It doesn't matter which way round it is. I swear that fucking box said Heidi Ho to me earlier. That <laughs> motherfucker told me it wanted to be my friend till the end. Do you like hugs? No. <laughs> I'm not having it. I'm not. If that, you'll find out. You've got two days and you'll mate, find out. If, if they've got a day, literally, if there is a, tomorrow. there is a Chucky doll in that box, I'm going to burn it. You're going to yeet it. <laughs> I'm going to fucking kick that little cunt. I'm going to yeet it. Right. Let's stop talking about yeet. Christmas. Stop. Uh, yeah. So, anyway. <laughs> so, today we're doing Night Before Christmas. So this is kind of my traditional Christmas movie. I generally watch this 
like in the run up to Christmas basically every year. What's the weirdest non-Christmas movie that you've ever watched at Christmas? Non-Christmas film? Yeah. Where you've just got up and it's like <clears throat> Christmas and nobody else is awake yet so you've just put a film on to like watch. I normally just play on my phone. <laughs> if no one else is up, I've normally just got my phone out or I'm on my laptop. I don't really watch The weirdest non-Christmas movie I've ever watched at Christmas. And it was a couple of years ago. It was when me and my sister were still living at home. So it was just before we got together. No, maybe it was the year we got together. We were sat at home and I made my sister watch Bridesmaids. <laughs> so we were... Yeah, it was the year we got together. So I remember coming over to your mum's house on Christmas Day. Yeah. And you being like, yeah, me and Laura watched Bridesmaids last night. And I was like, what is wrong with both Yeah, of Christmas you? Eve. Just nothing says happy Christmas like watching a bunch of women shitting in the streets. Yeah. Well, you've got your parents tomorrow, so we'll probably watch you Love Actually. Yeah. I'm going to watch Encanto tomorrow. Fair. That's fair. We should on Disney Plus. Yeah. Now. Everybody should know, watch... it's now on Disney Plus. Everybody should watch Encanto. Watch it. It's great. But yeah, so Night Before Christmas, released in 1993. I was eight years old when this fucking film came out. It was one. Uh, anyway, so... Um, directed by Henry Selick. Yes. Important distinction to make there. Not. Not. Not directed by Tim Burton. No. I just want to make that very directed clear. Directed by Henry Selick, who also directed Coraline. He directed James and the Giant Peach. And he's doing Wendell and Wild. And he's doing Wendell and Wild. Um, written screenplay written by Caroline Thompson, who also wrote Coraline and James and the Giant Peach. Screen. Uh, the. It was adapted by Michael McDowell, and it is based on a story and characters created by Tim Burton. Say it one more time for the people in the back. Created and based on characters. No. Based on characters created by Tim Burton. But the film was not directed by, by Tim, Tim Burton. Burton. It was directed by Henry Selleck. There we go. As long as we're clear on who directed this film. So cast wise, we have uh, Danny Elfman and Chris Sarandon are both Jack Skellington. Chris Random from Freud Singing voice and speaking voice, respectively. Mate, do you know what's really weird? Just as a quick aside. The character that Chris Sarandon plays, mm. or Sarandon plays, in Fright Night, is the character that Anton Yelchin plays in the remake. And there's a significant age gap there in is. those... Because like, in the original Fright Night, he's not old, but he's older. Yeah, and, and I think Anton, Anton Yelchin's like meant. <laughs> I think Anton Yelchin's meant to be basically the age he was. I think it's like supposed to be like twenty. Uh, IRL. Like Nineteen twenty. I can't remember how yeah. old Anton Yelchin was at that point. Also, first movie that him and Imogen Poot starred in before they did Green Room. Excellent. Sorry. None of this is relevant to anything that I'm telling you. I know. I just wanted to bring okay, up Fright Night. So <laughs> the voice of, of Sally is Catherine O'Hara. Um, the voice of Dr. Finkelstein is William Hickey. Uh, Glenn Shaddix voices the mayor. Paul Rubens voices Locke. Um, Ken Page voices Oogie Boogie. Edward Ivory voices Santa. <coughs> and then basically everyone else voices loads of characters. So do, lo- do Shock and Barrel not have like... I'm just trying to find out. So Shock is voiced by Catherine O'Hara. She's the girl, isn't she? Yeah, I'm just trying to find Barrel because he is in here somewhere. But there is a lot, a lot, So a lot. with the kids, Shock is the witch, right? Yeah, Shock is Lock the is witch. Lock is the little devil. And then is Barrel the fat skeleton? Yeah, but I 
don't know who voices Barrel because there's nobody credited in the cast listing for voicing Barrel. Oh, sad. It's just Paul Rubens. No, he's Locke, babe. He's just everybody. Oh, Barrel's Danny Elfman. It's literally his. It's the first oh. one. <laughs> Barrel is Danny Elfman. So yeah, a lot of the voice actors lend themselves to numerous characters in this film, mm. as is tradition. Um. Am I right in saying, because no one ever really talks about him, and I think he's only in one scene, mm-hmm. is Finkelstein's little mate called Igor? Yes. Okay. Yeah, because no one ever calls him by his name, and he's only in that one scene where they he's create the reindeer. Oh, is he? Yeah. I thought he was only in the one scene no, where they create the reindeer. But plot wise, ready? Jack Skellington, king of Halloween Town, discovers Christmas Town, but his attempts to bring Christmas to his home causes confusion. Nice. So, I mean, uh, it's a difficult thing to say this is the plot in like two sentences, (laughs) but I mean, it's vaguely, it's vaguely makes sense. I feel like with this movie, we should probably start at the beginning. So, do you remember the first time you saw this movie? Oh, God, no. It's been such a part of my life. Like, I must have seen it quite young. Because I don't really remember the first time I see it. It's like one of those films that's just always seemed to have been a part of my life. Mm-hmm. There's a few films that are like that for me, but I don't really remember the first time I ever saw it. Like, it's just always been there. I remember the first time I showed it to my brothers. Because <laughs> I introduced my brothers to this film when they were oh, five and seven, respectively. Nice. And, uh, yeah, so I remember showing it to my brothers for the first time. But I don't remember the first time I saw it. I might be a little bit older than that, actually. I think they were seven and nine. Because mm. I'd have been 14. So, yeah, seven and nine, I think. Um, but, yeah, no, I don't remember the first time I saw it at all. About you? Uh, yeah, Christmas, 1993. Um, <laughs> my, so we had moved into the house that my parents live in now that summer. And I remember my parents giving it to me on VHS. I wasn't really sure what it was because back, back in the early nineties, like if you didn't go to the cinema, like you wouldn't see trailers for things. So, and I didn't really know what it was. And my parents gave it to me. And I tell you what, this is the most frustrating, like sense of delayed gratification. I think I've ever had in my life, especially as a child, because my parents gave it to me on VHS and I wanted to watch it like immediately so I put it on after we'd wrap, unwrapped all the presents and started watching it. And then my parents were like, no, we're going out for lunch. So then we had to, we went to Good Companion. We had to go for lunch and we had to do all that. And then we were like, oh, we're going home. So I was like, put the movie back on, continue watching it. And then they were like, oh, we're going out in the evening. I think I, I think I tried three times throughout this Christmas day to watch this fucking movie. But um, yeah, I remember that was the first time I saw it because my parents thought, for some weird reason, they were like, this is an acceptable thing to buy an eight-year-old. I mean, by this point, I'd already seen Tim Burton's Batman, and I think I'd already seen Beetlejuice and Pee Wee Herman. So I think they were probably like, it's probably no weirder than that. Yeah. And I was like, fair enough. Um, so I remember watching it as a kid. And then it was one of those movies that kind of like, it didn't really stay with me through childhood. Like, I had it on VHS, and then I would, like, watch it, and it would be on TV, like, every year for Christmas. But I don't remember it being a big part of my childhood until I become a teenager. And then, for some reason, around the age of, like, 13, 14, it was, like, the biggest thing in the world. Somehow, overnight, this movie... 
And I say this about a lot of things, and I don't mean to sound elitist or gatekeeper-y when I say this, so I apologise yeah. if it comes up across that way. It's one of those things, like, somebody gives you something, so you discover a band or a film, yeah, and then you try and tell people about it, and no one has heard of it. So it's just the weird thing that you like. Yeah. And then suddenly, overnight, everybody knows yeah. about it. And the same thing happened to me with AFI when I was a teenager, and the same thing happened to me with 30 Seconds to Mars as well. Although a lot of the people that got into that band were very quick to also abandon that band, I, I might add. But it's one of those things, like, I don't... And I, the thing is, I don't know when the cultural shift happened. Yeah, so I don't... I kind of remember, like, I got into <clears throat> goth when I was, like, 12 years old. You listened to a Cure song <laughs> once. <laughs> no, so I don't know if you ever know this, even know this. My mum, for Christmas one year... Bought me a Susie Darkside bag. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> if you remember Susie Darkside. Yeah, she was like fucking Emily Strange for like poor kids. <laughs> Mate, fucking Susie stuff was really expensive. What was Fuck the off. other one? It was Ruby something. Ruby Gloom. There we go. Um, but you so say it was her sat on gravestones of the church burning in the background. Like little 12 year old nice. me and my mum's like, here, this is really cool. And I became obsessed with her and I got super into goth. So that's how I ended up getting into goth shit was my mum bought me a bag because she thought it was cute. <laughs> That's how my mum made me a goth. That's yeah. what happened. And um, I remember like the first time I went to Blue Banana, for anyone who's not a UK listener, is kind of like a British Hot Topic. It's basically like the Wish version of Hot Topic. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be a lot better. It has massively gone downhill. When I was a teenager, it was amazing. Is it, is it a Blue Banana where we went to when we went to Sheffield? Yeah, it is. Yeah. Oh, it's gone massively downhill. When I was a teenager, it, they, it was a lot better. And now it's kind of, they just stock random shit. Um, but it used to be like the go-to goth shop in the UK. And they were there's not a lot of them. And there's really not, there's like four of them left now. Um, and they used to literally, you would walk through the door and there would be an entire section of the wall dedicated to Nightmare Before Christmas. Pitch, like, artwork, t-shirts, shoes, bags, teddies, with Jack and Sally. So, it's kind of been, because I grew up after it had become a phenomenon, basically, in, like, the alternative community, I've kind of always, it's never been yeah. weird for me that it suddenly blew up because it's always been huge. It also, like, <coughs> without sound, because like, I remember being a teenager, like, it permeated into, like, the music scene at the time as mm -hmm. well. Like, a lot of, like, ba uh, band members in, like, hardcore bands or punk bands or, like, emo bands mm -hmm. all had, like, Davey Havoc, before he had his uh, arm out. covered out, he had, like, a whole... His whole right arm was like a Nightmare Before Christmas piece. And like, I think Pete Wentz has got some as well. Mm -hmm. And like, so, you a know. Lot of a lot of like, like I grew up, a lot of A lot of emo bands. Uh, Alkaline Trio, Matt Skiba from Alkaline Trio. Um, I mean, it's referenced in a Blink-182 song. Yeah, like, so. this is what I was going to say. Like, so I think it, I think it became one of those things of like, it had a second life. So, like, obviously there were people that discovered it as children, like I did. There were people that discovered it because of Tim Burton's association. But then there, there is, weirdly, a whole generation of people that discovered it from that Blink... From I Miss You by Blink-182. Or from, like, being in, like, emo, goth, or alternative culture. And being like, oh, what's that thing tattooed on my favourite singer's arm? And then yeah. Googling it and finding out and stuff like that. And, like, a lot of bands, like, referenced it in interviews and stuff like that. And I think that for, for a, a wide generation of children who are now adults, 
people would have got into it through like reading Kerrang! magazine or Metal Hammer yeah. or going on MySpace and seeing like pictures and things like that. And it's it's interesting to see kind of how it really like permeated into like popular culture and almost overnight. Like it is and it's it's such a weird thing to say that this like and like when you look at the merchandising for it as well. So I when I was younger I used to have a lot more merchandise because I just bought a lot of stuff because it was Nightmare Before Christmas branded. I had like a die-cut glass coffin paperweight. I had like tra- uh, playing cards. I had like t-shirts, head knockers, cards. action figures. Um, I still have, and this is one of my favourite things that we own. We need to get it sorted um, and put up somewhere. I have a mint condition set of Nightmare Before Christmas dinner plates that were made by NECA which are one of my favourite things that I own. Never been used. Moved in about seven or eight different houses. Um, so, and that's the weird thing for me, is like, of all the things that, that Tim Burton is associated with, this is the one that became the most mainstream. Mm. And you, there's some irony to Tim Burton being like, so I'm the fucking guy that had my wisdom teeth pulled around, out and was walking around Disney bleeding and showing everyone my teeth. And he's like... I created this fucking weird thing and now it's like more popular than God. Like, what yeah. the fuck? Yeah. For someone who's like an outsider, he must I don't know how he feels about it. And like I he must feel he like know, he I know he I know he is very protective of it. Because he spoke about it in interviews. Whenever anyone brings up there being a sequel made, mm. he'll say he he shoots it down every time because he's very protective of the thing that exists. Yeah. So I'd say he's pretty into it. Yeah, it's just it's just weird though, isn't it? Like, yeah. and like, so with this film, do you consider it a horror film? Uh, kind of. I'm gonna say from a certain perspective. <laughs> from a certain perspective, like for a child, like my my youngest brother, it scared the living bejesus out of him. But my older brother, I say older, like he's older than me. <laughs> the middle child yeah. is like totes. So he was never bothered by it. But when we when Tom first saw it, the youngest one of us. He was terrified. Because like the, the, obviously when you, when it first opens and it's all the different monsters. And yeah, it, it spooked him quite a lot as a kid. Yeah. It's a kid-friendly horror film. It's exactly what it is. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think from a certain perspective, if you show someone something young enough and mm. they don't understand the context, mm-hmm. like, I would imagine there are like a couple of scenes, especially the Christmas scene where Jack does Christmas and all the presents start revolting, mm-hmm. I think would scare children. Yeah. Like the fucking sandworm eating the Christmas tree and all that stuff. I think kids would look at that and be like, fuck is this? Yeah. Um, and as you say, the thing is as well, like the creature or character, should I say, designing this, there's a fucking dude walking around with a hatchet in his head. Yeah. Um, and one, like I said to you when we were watching it, there's a really dark sequence where they're holding counsel and Sally's sat on a tree that's got two pe- two hanging victims. It's got way more. It's, there's like six of them across the tree. Yeah, because but you in the, the, the shot, shot I was watching, you can only see two. two. Of them, yeah. yeah, and they're like skeletons that are still hanging from yeah. their nooses, and like the mental imagery of like that and connotations and things is like really quite dark. Yeah, um, it's a fucking like it, it is a dark movie for all of its like songs and singing and bright like Christmas shit. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking weird movie. But do you consider so? Do you consider it Christmas movie or a Halloween movie? Christmas. I think both. Both is good. And it's a musical, right? Yeah, it's a musical. Hundred percent. 
I don't know how anyone can argue against that. Like it's it, it is majoritively songs. Yeah. Um, so just a few fun little facts about this that I looked that I found and I was like, I'm into this. So this was made on a budget of twenty four million dollars. Fucking hell. Which is quite a lot. Yeah, for us. And I know girl. I think it was originally supposed to be bigger and but it was originally a lot smaller. Hmm. <laughs> and they fought tooth and nail to get the budget upped. Because they need basically they needed it. It also took three years to complete. Yeah, I'm not surprised because I've seen documentaries like from Leica when they talk about making stop motion stuff about how yeah. you literally have to like move and take pictures. We will, we will talk about that. Um, so it made a box office overall. So this is including re-releases, ninety-one point five million dollars. Is that from then to now? From then till now, a box office, which isn't bad because they did a three D re-release. They did as well. do a three D re-release. So. Um, yes, it took three years to complete, which is a f- hell of a long time. Mm. Um, and at the peak of production, there were 20 individual stages all being used at the same time. And there were 109,444 frames taken Shit. to make the film. There is 227 puppets constructed to represent the characters, uh, with Jack Skellington having around 400 different heads. To allow for his expression. Um, the stop motion figure for Jack was also reused in James and the Giant Peach as Captain Jack. Nice. Fun fun side for you. Um, so Dr. Finkelstein is only referred to by name once in the film. And that is by the mayor when they're all lined up getting their Christmas jobs. He is credited as being evil scientist. Hmm. Um, and then just two little fun facts that I thought were really cool. So the crossed out calculation on Jack's backboard. That equates three to... the times the square of pi multiplied by 12 to Christmas Day, which is a Santa hat, is the true numerical answer of 355.31, which is December 25th, the 355th day of the year, and it is also the day of the winter solstice and the birthday of Jeffrey Katzenberg, who is the executive producer. He went on to do some stuff with Pixar, I think. And then last one, um, so originally Oogie Boogie was supposed to be Dr. Finkelstein in disguise and reportedly Tim Burton was so infuriated by this idea he kicked a hole in a wall. I can't imagine angry Tim Burton. I can't either. But he... I just thought it was really funny, just him getting so pissed off and kicking a hole in the wall. He's like, fuck this shit. There's my fun facts for this film. So I imagine because... It started, like, because we watched the Movies That Made Us episode on this. We did. I'm pretty confident, then, the reason why he wasn't involved in making it was if they started making it in 1990, he would have finished making Batman. Mm -hmm. Batman would have been released in 89. And then he would have gone into production on Batman Returns around Mm -hmm. this time. Yeah. I think he talks about it, or they talk about it, should I say, because he's not in the movies that made the episode. No. I, I'm pretty oh, he's sure in a couple do, of scenes, but I think they use archive They use archive. Footage. They talk about the fact that he basically, because of the time they were making it, he couldn't be as involved as he would have liked to have been. Yeah. Plus, he'd been fired by Disney at this point as well, so he was yeah. no longer working for Disney. Yeah, because I'm just thinking, he did Batman, Edward Scissorhands, and then he, he went straight into production on Batman Returns. So that's what he would have been doing in that mm-hmm. three-year period. Um, but yeah. Um, so he wasn't involved. Like he was involved. Like it, it was his characters, and he had a lot, quite a bit of a say in what was happening. 
but he wasn't massively involved. But he did have a lot of say in the songs mm-hmm. by the amazing frontman of Oingo Boingo. Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. My brain went. <coughs> like, he's the frontman of Oingo Boingo. Who we listen to. Well, I say we. You listen I to. I listen to a lot. I can't <laughs> escape. Um, um, yeah, so as an aside, it's really funny you mentioned Danny Elfman because I was talking about him yesterday. I do not think that that man gets enough credit for creating the incredible scores that he has throughout his career. Like, outside of John Williams, Mm -hmm. there's only one other person who I can think that has created as many iconic scores, and that is... Danny Elfman. Danny Elfman. You think the Batman fanfare from the Batman movies, like uh, Beetlejuice's theme, Mm -hmm. the Men in Black theme, all Mm -hmm. the songs for this. Mm -hmm. He did Nightbreed, which we talked about previously. Mm Fifty Shades Darker, he did some songs for that. Girl on the Train, Justice League, more recently. He's, he's done he's a lot, basically, is awesome. what we're saying. Yeah, he's an absolute um, But So he he obviously wrote all the songs for this, but he wrote all of the songs for this film before there was a script. Nice. So Tim Burton would call him and explain what was happening in the scene, and then he would go and write the song, and then come back and be like, this is what I got. I think he said he wrote, basically, the entirety of this the the soundtrack for this film in about 10 days nice like it was a really quick what do you think Tim Burton describing a scene as like I have no idea I feel like it's chaos incarnate like legitimately Tim Burton's one of those people like I think he's fucking a phenomenal director at times but I also think he's batshit mental and I would hate to be stuck in a room with him because I feel like I would want to hurt him See, my, my take on him is I've seen behind-the-scenes footage of him. I've seen many interviews of him. I've never actually seen him direct anything. Um, I imagine he's a very well-prepared director. Probably. But I also imagine he's not a director who's able to think on his feet. Like, I imagine everything is, like, planned and storyboarded within an inch of its life. And he has no work around if it doesn't work, if that makes sense. Yeah, but we're not talking about Tim Burton's directing style. No, no. Just... Tim Burton did not direct this film. Cannot say it enough. Although it feels like it... it I think that's another thing, because it, the movie was sold by his name, and it feels like the Tim Burton The thing is, though, is I feel it, like a lot of people, people say that. that. Like, it feels like a Tim Burton film. But then if you go and watch Coraline, or you go and watch James and the Giant Peach... They feel very much the same. So I don't think it is that. They f- it feels like a Tim Burton film. I think it feels like a Henry Selleck film. Mm. It's just the characters are so intrinsically Tim Burton because they are his characters. Am I... Just a, a side note, because you mentioned James Dwight Peach. James Dwight Peach has got that fucking creepy-ass spider in it, isn't it? Yeah. And it's got the worm? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I haven't... like. We've talked about it before, I think, how much I love Roald Dahl. But I haven't seen that movie since I was a child. I used to love James and the Giant Peach. Yeah, it was one of those movies I had on VHS and I watched it a lot when I was a child. But I don't think I've ever revisited it as an I, adult. Well, we might revisit it at some point. Not for the podcast, just in general. Because hmm. I'd quite fancy watching it again. It's been a long time since I saw it. Yeah, anyway, it's a good movie. But like, the film does feel like very much like... if, Especially if you watch this and then watch Coraline after it. Never seen They that. feel like such similar films. So, because I remember when, when Coraline came out, they credited it everywhere. It was, like, from the team behind Nightmare Before Christmas. And a load of people did the exact same thing. They were like, oh, it's a new Tim Burton film. And everyone's like, and I'm like, uh, d- d- no. And then Tim Burton dropped the deuce that was fucking 
Corpse Bride. I like Corpse Bride, so don't come Maybe it's it. a creepy worm in Corpse Bride I'm thinking of. There's, there's a cre- also a creepy worm in James and the Giant's Peach. You, yeah, but yeah. I think I'm thinking of... The, Comes out of her eye socket. The creepy worm. Yeah, socket. he's blue, isn't he? No, he's green. No, the She's one in James and the Giant Peach is green. Uh, is he blue? I thought he was... She's blue. I thought he was kind of... A, anyway, it's irrelevant, it's but yeah. But yeah, so... Um, but I find that happened with a lot of films, though, because kind of Coraline, it was like from the team behind Night Before Christmas. And then if I remember correctly, Nine? Yeah. Was some of the people who worked on Night, Night Before Christmas worked on Nine yeah, as well. but it was directed by Timu Betmombokov. Yeah, made but a lot, the marketing for it was, again, from the team behind Nightmare Before Christmas. I think it's because Tim Burton produced it. Maybe. Um, he was a producer on it, and then he produced Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter as well. It, it was less that war the point I was trying to make in regards to it. Was there seemed to have been this thing of, oh, it's a stop-motion animation film made by... Because I'm, I'm assuming there's not a large community of people who can do stop-motion. No. So most stop-motion is going to have the same kind of people working behind it, because it's a very, very yeah. difficult skill to learn, and also it's a very, like specific skills. I think there are actually only two film studios that still do it, which is Ardman yeah. and Leica. Yeah. So that kind of proves the point. Yeah. So, I mean, you so you either worked on things like Wallace and Gromit, mm. which is also stop motion, or you worked on things like Before Christmas. Like, it's two very different styles of stop motion. And I think that was kind of the thing, was because we went through this period, there's quite a lot of stop motion films coming out. And it was quite recently that everything was like from the team behind Night Before Christmas and people would go see it because it's Tim Burton's Night Before Christmas. I thought Nine was actually animated though. Oh, it might have been. I, babe, I saw it once and I was bored. Yeah, out I was going to say, I skull. think Nine was actually animated. I mean, so it might have really been. I think it had a similar style to what yeah. stop motion looked like though. I can't remember. I saw it once and I was so it's bored. It's the little sack people, wasn't it? Yeah, I kind of... I literally was so bored watching it that I just kind of blocked it slightly from my brain because it was just not good. But yeah, they kind of... There was this trick moment of everything was like, from the studio behind before behind Night Before Christmas and you're like, yeah, but this isn't... It's not Henry Selleck. It's not Tim Burton. It's not the same writer. It's the same people who... And that's not me dissing on it being the same people who no. do stop motion because... The amount of talent that goes into stop motion and the talent that the people have who work on these films is insane. And we discussed this watching the film. There seems to be this weird thing with stop motion. It doesn't really age. No. But I think because of the style it is, like, you can sit and watch a stop motion film from, I mean, this is what? 28 years old. 28 years old. It's coming up 30 years old. And I, honestly, watching it, I wouldn't have said it was a 30-year-old movie. So I think the thing with stop motion animation where it like, so something like, for example, the Muppets, where it's puppeteers, Mm -hmm. puppeteering, sometimes that doesn't age as well because you can see behind the curtain almost, you can see strings or you can see things like that Mm -hmm. because it's it's puppets in a live action environment. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think with stop motion animation, the reason why it doesn't age as badly is because there's a lot of it is like sets and a lot of it is like matte paintings because i'm pretty sure there are certain scenes in nightmare before christmas that are matte paintings and just where the backgrounds are yeah Yeah. especially the ones that zero's on because they they animate him against like a a, a i I, I don't know about zero because i'm pretty sure zero still stop motion He's not animated. Yeah, see, this is the thing with Zero. I don't really know, because a lot of the scenes that he's in, he's translucent. 
So he no, seems, and he's a bit ethereal. Yeah. So he seems like he is like animation that goes over the top of it, as opposed to being a puppet because of, or or like a clay figure. There are certain scenes where he looks more full and he's he's whiter and he looks like he's got a body where he probably is a figure. But the scene like where Jack's walking, um, what's that hill thing called that looks like a pretzel at the end where he's like him and Sally have the moment. Because mm-hmm. Zero goes past the moon and he looks animated because he's basically, he is see-through. And that's what I mean. A lot of it is like, a lot of the reason why the art of stop motion no. ages better is because of, like, the matte paintings and the sets and stuff. Like, look at Wallace and Gromit, for example. Uh, the wrong trousers, where they're walking with the trousers and the whole yeah, thing with go. the penguin and so stuff. So Zero was going to be animated in a traditional hand-drawn 2D animation, and the plan was to add the character on top of the stop-motion mm. footage. Ultimately, the idea was abandoned in favour for Zero being animated in stop-motion and added at a percentage to give each scene a ghostly look. So they stop motioned him and then basically added him to the scene and faded him. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. yeah so he's still sense. he's still stop motion. I don't fucking I nuts. think pretty much a hundred percent of this film is stop motion, bar things they weren't able to do. So like Sally's expression is animated mm-hmm. because of the movements she needed to make, like her face anim- is animated, not stop motion face, unlike Jack. Mm-hmm. But I think it's only minor animations to make the movements work. Holy shit. So this movie is basically, I think probably, we'll, probably, we'll probably call it like 99% stop yeah. motion animation. And the thing is as well, if you put this, so like Laika, for example, who did Kubo and the Two Strings, they did um, Box Trolls, Paranorman. If you put this up against Paranorman, you wouldn't think. Paranorman came out in 2012, so Paranorman came out 20 years almost after this, and they look like they could have been made. Yeah, and I think this is the, the thing, because... Because stop motion is kind of one of those timeless arts. Like, you never really change the way you do stop motion. It's always kind of... I mean, look <clears> at <throat> Jason and the Argonauts. Yeah. Okay, the stop motion <coughs> that has aged not so great because it was a lot bulkier then. But aside from finessing, stop motion has always been done in the exact yeah. same way. Slight movement, slight movement, slight movement. Change the head, move the character, like... And with Jason the Argonauts, it's only a short yeah. scene that's done in stop motion. But you hit the nail on the head there, because I think the Harryhausen stuff especially goes back to what I said about the Muppets. Mm-hmm. Because it's in live action and it's moving at a different frame rate to... The, like, we move at a... Pe- like you can't, people can't see what I'm doing, but you can see how frantically I'm moving while yeah. I'm talking to you. Because humans and live action stuff moves at a certain pace, mm-hmm. it's more obvious when there's stop motion in a live action setting like for example you look at gremlin uh, not gremlins well gremlins actually is a good example that scene where they're all walking mm-hmm. stop motion but it looks really obvious because there's a lot of them moving in and and uh, but the thing with things like that when because that's a really short scene i feel like stop motion doesn't work so well when it's used for a short scene yeah because there seems to be this tendency and it happens in a lot of films if they rush the stop motion a little bit so the movements don't seem it feels sped natural. Up. <laughs> yeah. Whereas with a film like this or with Corpse Bride, with Paranorman, with Coraline. Coraline is stop motion, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I keep saying it. It's a mix of goes, stop motion and animation, motion? I think. Because it's I think it's Laika that did that as well. I can't remember. But because the film is like mostly stop motion, there's so much intricacy and finesse put into moving like Half a, cent- half a centimetre, half a centimetre, half, like, tiny little movements over and over and over again. 
that they look like they're moving perfectly. Like you don't question that it's not real. Mm-hmm. Um, but like with animation, because animation, actual animation has changed so much. You go back and look at early animated films and they look in comparison to modern day ones a lot older and yeah. not as well made. Whereas with something like this, this has aged phenomenally well. Like, you don't question that it was made. Someone could hand me a copy of it and go, oh, yeah, it was made, like, three years ago. And I'd be like, yeah, fair. That tracks. So I have I have two questions to ask you. One is related to the sequel. One is related to the remake. Yes. So they asked Tim Burton about a sequel in mm-hmm. 2011. And he said he wasn't interested because he's like, oh, what's Jack going to do? Go to, like, Thanksgiving land. He's like, I have no interest in, in exploring, like, any of the other doors, the other mm-hmm. holidays, any of that. One of the things they brought up was it being CGI and he shot the idea down straight away. Mm -hmm. And then they've talked about making a live action remake. Mm -hmm. So I want to ask you first about a sequel. Mm -hmm. Not a lot is known about the sequel other than the things I just pointed out. Do do you think this movie benefits from not having been franchised? Yes. And do you think they, if they did do a sequel, it would have to be stop motion? Yes. How would you feel if they'd made a CGI sequel? I wouldn't have seen it. I think a hand-drawn, traditionally animated sequel would have been alright. No. But I don't agree with a CGI one. No. And I definitely don't understand how you make a live-action version of this movie without making all the characters CGI in a live-action environment. Yeah. I don't really know how they'd manage that. To be fair, some of the characters they could do physically. Jack, however... You can't physically make Jack happen. He's a skeleton. Mm-hmm. Like, he would have to be probably, like, um, when you put the green suits on. Yeah. Not stop motion. He would have to be, yeah, he'd have to be CGI. He yeah. He would have to be motion cap. Motion cap. There we go. Mo cap. Um, but, yeah, I can't imagine it as a live action just because I don't think it would work. And a sequel was... It's never needed a sequel. Like, it ends... <clears throat> perfectly like you don't need to like would I like to know what happened afterwards of course because everyone wants to know what happens in worlds they love but it doesn't need it and if they'd have made it and done it a CGI I think I would have kind of lost my shit to be honest Hmm. because half of the beauty of Nightmare is that it is stop motion and I think if you take that part away it loses quite a lot of its charm almost instantaneously because i remember seeing it and it's not like anything you'd seen before yeah because no animation looks like that no live action film looks like that and it's so like built into nightmare that it is a stop motion film and the, the way it's animated is so beautiful that i think making it cgi would it makes it too shiny yeah I think also as well, it's kind of interesting what I just said about the conversation we had earlier, because the fact that Tim Burton was able to nix it means that he must still have some creative control over the franchise. I, I have no idea, babe, and I've never bothered looking it up. I, I don't care enough like, to No, honest. but that would be my, my, my thing would be like, because if he didn't, if they didn't have to get his say, you fucking bet your ass Disney would have done it by oh, now. Oh yeah, but we are getting a sequel. <coughs> yeah. In the form of a book. It's due out next year. And it is allegedly going to be called called Sally the Pumpkin Queen. No, Long Live the Pumpkin Queen. Long Live the Pumpkin Queen. Thank you, babe. And it's going to be about what what happened after. And you know what? I'll read it. 
I tell you, I would if it's going to be a YA, it's not going to be a yeah. kids book. It's going to be a YA novel. So I will read it. Like if someone like gives me it, I will read it. I will tell you something though. The fact that a sentient skeleton and a sentient ragdoll can fucking have kids is wet. Well, we don't know if they have kids. Well, yeah, because the, the the picture of the book and the description for the book says it's all about her children. The book. The the description for the book says nothing about that. The description of the book is about Sally. It's literally set like three days after the film ends. Oh, well, something I read it's online. It's about them said it was falling about in love, and she accidentally releases like this evil into the universe, and it's them trying to battle it. Oh, well, fair enough. If it's not in, so there was a deleted scene from the end of the film that where Santa Claus basically goes to visit Jack, and he finds out Jack has like children. He's yeah. like four little skeleton kids. But it, it's not it's not canon. It's not. It was never released. It's not anywhere you can find it, as far as I'm aware. I was going to say because the idea of them two having sex and having kids is is like about as nonsensical as fucking vampire boys shagging Bella in Twilight and getting her pregnant. Fair. Like, I don't know. They're Halloween monsters, babe. Things aren't supposed to make sense. <laughs> um, I'm gonna have to ask about it because we need to talk about it because we can't talk about this film and not talk about it. Take the songs out of this movie, is it still as good? Does the movie work without the songs? No. Interestingly enough, though, the songs work without the movie. Yes. The, don't, like, don't get me wrong, I love the character creation in this. Like, I love the characters that were given, but I feel like the songs are what make this film so good. Yeah. And that is solely down to Danny Elfman. Like, he has such a talent. And you take that away and you lose a massive part of the heart of the film. Because what is Nightmare if you don't have This Is Halloween? You don't have Jack's Lament, you don't have Sally's Lament, you don't have the Oogie Boogie song. Like, everyone knows the words. Mm. And What's This, which is the one you mentioned. Yeah, apologies, I forgot to mention What's This. Yeah, I think it's one of those weird things, like... Do you know, bizarrely, like, I was thinking about Nightmare Revisited as we were watching it, because obviously, like, they took a bunch of, like, rock artists like Evanescence, well, Amy Lee specifically, Korn, Panic at the Disco, etc., and then they did that Nightmare Revisited album. They did. And I was like, the Kidnap the Sandy Claws version that Korn did fucking... Yeah, Mr. Sandy Claws? Rules. And it's like, it's a, it's an indi- it's a, a very good indication of how good a song is. If you can take it out of a musical... Take it completely out of context, change the genre of it, and it still be a good song. And I think that's an indication that with a lot of musicals, a lot of musicals you can't pluck songs out. Yeah. Like, there are songs in Wizard of Oz, for example, like you can take Somewhere Over the Rainbow, and it's just an amazing song regardless. But, but then, to be fair, I don't think Wizard of Oz is really a musical. It is and it isn't. Like, yeah, it's, a, it's a film that has some songs yeah. in it, but the songs are not necessary to the film. Exactly. Musicals, the songs are necessary to the film. Whereas if you took, for example, The Rain in Spain, or, or whatever, that, I can't remember what the actual title of the song is. But if you take that song... Oh, from My Fair Lady. Out of My Fair Lady, and listen to it on its own, out of context, it's not as good. It needs the context of the film yeah. to, highlight, to highlight the, the song. So while I agree... The songs at the heart of Nightmare Before Christmas do make the film, or they do elevate the film. The songs on their own are good enough to not have to be in the film. But I do. I literally said yes to both of those questions. Why are you, why are you saying it as if I said no to both <laughs> but, of those questions? No, no, but what I'm saying is, for me, 
I could watch the film without the songs in it. The, okay. the, the songs don't make the film for me. I don't watch the film for the songs. I watch the film I mean, I'm for not the saying, film. I'm not saying I watch the film for the songs, but what I'm saying is you take out those songs and it, the, the, the film is not as good. There are definitely a couple of songs in this that I would cut out. Ooh. Uh, the one that he sings, the one that Jack sings after he gets shot down... Oh yeah, yeah I would take fair. out the, It's the lament reprise yeah. isn't it And then the one that him and her sing to each other at the end I Simply would cut meant out to be one. Yeah I would cut both of those oh, out Oh no I like simply meant to be Also Zero is Loki the best character in this okay. movie And he doesn't get his own We're song We're so about music. What is your favourite song in this film Uh, What's this Or Kidnap the Sandy Claws Fair, fair. What's this because what's this I love because I love the whole sequence in the film Mm -hmm. so like the scene when he goes to Christmas land for the first time I think the first time I saw this this movie that's the one scene that stands out to me the most and to to be fair watching it now as a 36 year old adult that's the one scene that brings me the most joy in this Mm -hmm. movie because it perfectly encapsulates what Christmas is in the eyes of a child. Mm-hmm. And it's the childlike wonder in his eyes of discovering Christmas. And it's like there's this there's the particular scene where he's running through the town and he picks up the Christmas lights and he holds the Christmas lights in his eyes. Mm-hmm. Or his eye sockets, should I say. And that whole sequence, and with the little elves going, la, 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 behind him, it's just... It ju- it just I don't think the film really gets any better than that scene. Okay. Like that is the peak of this film for me. Fair. And kidnap the Sandy Claus because it's just fucking funny and the little kids are little shits. <laughs> what about you? Uh, so probably either kidnap the Sandy Claus because, mm. like you said, it's just fun or Oogie Boogie song. Yeah. Because that entire set piece is potentially my favourite set piece in that entire film. Like the, cause it's a, the casino setup of yeah. it being a fucking wheel with like the um arm the one arm bandits mm. coming out and it's just so much fun and I love that scene and it's oh, I think it's always been like my favourite song in the film because I love his I love Oogie Boogie as a character anyway because he's just a little shit I think also interestingly enough. It's one of the rare Disney movies where the soundtrack transcends genres. So, like, all of the songs in the film sound like they come from different places. Mm-hmm. So, like, the Oogie Boogie song is, like, it's very jazzy, jazzy. very New Orleans-y. Yeah. Um, it sounds kind of like, do you know what it reminds me of? And I know this film came out a long time after. It reminds me of Dr. Facilier's song from uh, Princess yeah. and the Frog. It very much... That scene it kind was of clearly has that, inspired like, New Orleans by jazz soul yeah. feel to it. That just it it really does make that entire piece work. And then you've got like the sad goth kind of like Susie and the Banshees esque like Sally song. And then you've got like what's this, which is your typical hallmark like Christmas kind of sounds like it should be on a Coke advert kind of song. Um, and then you have like the jazz musicians doing their like little interludes mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So. I think the fact that it, it kind of is a very musically diverse soundtrack also helps. I think the thing is as well, so if we're talking about the soundtrack for this film, we have to talk about the lyrics to some of these songs. So Jack's Lament has potentially some of the most inventive lyrics. Yeah. Because he references Shakespeare in it. Mm-hmm. There's also a reference to uh, the painting Scream. 
mm-hmm. as well because one of the one of the gravestones has got the Edward screen. Edvard Munch's screen, uh, screen mask on it. Um, but yes, yeah, so there's the, the great line, which is "Since I am dead, I can take off my head to recite Shakespearean quotations," which is obviously a reference to Hamlet. Mm-hmm. And there's also there's the the line that's like to a guy in Kentucky, I'm Mister Unlucky, and I'm known throughout England and France. Yeah. And the I think it's not one of my it's not, the thing is it's difficult to pick a favorite song in this film because I love all of them quite dearly. But this song lyrically is probably one of the most inventively put together songs. Yeah. Um, because it's just so there's so many little like nods to things in it, and I love that. This also this film also has one of the most quotable openings of mm-hmm. any film ever. Because that opening, which was originally done by Patrick Stewart. Patrick Stewart money. And um, so on the soundtrack version, the opening for mm. um, yeah, I was listening Halloween to the soundtrack Town the other day. Yeah. Is Patrick Stewart? Yeah, I was listening to the soundtrack the other day. I think in the film is it is Danny Elfman. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're right. You're hundred percent right. Um, and also originally, as just a side note, um, I think it's Doctor Finkelstein was supposed to be Vincent Price. Nice. But he, it was literally the film was released four days after he passed away. Yeah. And he quite deteriorated by the time he filmed his voice for it. So it basically got shelved. So there's an entire recording out there of Vincent Price reading for... I'm pretty confident it's Dr. Finkelstein. I can't remember. It would either be him or the mayor, I would have thought. Yeah, and it got, it got shelved. So somewhere there is a recording of um, Vincent Price doing that voice. Nice. But yeah, so there's a cute... But yeah, it was, um, it was released for general release four days after Vincent Price passed away. Yeah, I definitely, I definitely agree with you about some of the lyrics and some of the songs. Like the lyrics, definitely, and I like the way that Danny Elfman uses his score because there's like reprisals of like different things. There's like "Here Comes Santa Claus" coming down Santa Claus Lane. You can hear a reprise of that musically and because it's for Jack Lee. Yeah, and then I'm pretty confident, and like somebody can correct me if they're wrong. There's a very brief snippet of his Batman fanfare. So in one of in one of the songs, uh, in the in the background before it goes into the key part of the score, I'm pretty sure there's like a, a couple of notes of his Batman fanfare from the 1989 Batman, which might be the other Batman reference that you were referring to, um, which I thought was really cool because I because it's such an iconic score. I picked it out like immediately. Yeah. I was like, this is really cool. Um, yeah. So we covered the music. Did you um, have any? I was going to say. Something I was going to say, yeah. Did you have anything else that you want to say yeah. for the So it's just a just a little little nod in that they have in the score, and it's in the song. So quite a few times, I think it's using "What's This," and it's using another song definitely. Um, there's a, a uh, there's a reprise of um, Desiree's. Uh, Desiree's the it's a big classical piece, and most mm-hmm. most uh, most classical musicians have a version of it. Um, but yeah, it's a um, fucking. What is his name? Danny Elfman has like slipped it into parts of the score. How which I do thought you was keep forgetting Danny Elfman? I Elfman's don't name. know. I don't know. I keep going to say John Williams. I'm like, nope, wrong person. That's all I would say. Um, so we talk about music. We talked about the film. Let's talk about characters. Okie dokie. So let's start with the background characters. Mm-hmm. The villagers in this movie are fucking awesome. They are indeed. It- really fucking annoys me that they don't spend more time in Halloween Town um, and we don't get to see these people doing uh, like cool shit more often. Mm-hmm. There's some really cool scenes in this movie that are like just really small scenes 
that kind of highlight what kind of people live in this Halloween mm. town. So there's a scene towards the end of the movie where it starts snowing in Halloween town and you see like the witches playing hockey with a pumpkin and you see like the hatchet guy and the fish woman doing like snow angels yeah. and stuff like that. That's really Talking cool. Talking of the, the, the hockey scene, the pumpkin was originally supposed to be Tim Burton's head. Well, yeah, I kind of assumed it was meant to be a head. But... Yeah, originally apparently it was Tim Burton's head, but they weren't sure whether Tim Burton would approve it or not. So they just cut it and replaced it with a pumpkin. I feel like he would have been like, fuck yeah. Oh yeah, no, so do I. But yeah, apparently they, yeah, they didn't even address it with him. They just cut it and made it a pumpkin. Because there's a few villagers that you see quite a lot in this. There's the t- the tar man, I the guess. The tar man. You see the vampires quite a lot. Yeah. The three witches. Uh, the, I would have called him the Russian doll guy. Yeah. He's got, got the, like the, ha- the, the, hats. the hats. Um, there's the little pugsley looking kid mm-hmm. who hangs out with the mummy kid. There's, there's a bat kid. There's a couple of witches. There's the um, fish lady. Lady, yeah, the gill lady, who hangs out with Hatchet Man, who mm-hmm. the guy who's got the hatchet in his head. There's the two ske- There's the two or more skeletons that are like hanging from the nooses. Yeah, there's uh, the clown with the terrifying face. Yeah, he's on a unicycle for most of the movie. He is. He hangs out with werewolf. Hatchet Guy quite a bit as well. The werewolf is my favourite because the werewolf is such a fucking G because he looks like a lumberjack. I, I, would, I, would, I would love to know what the thought process of creating the werewolf was because obviously he's designed to look like Lon Chaney's werewolf. Mm. So in the original Universal Monsters, he always wore like a shirt and would tear the shirt open when he became a wolfman. So the check shirt that he's wearing is a direct reference to that. But he just he just looks so buff. Like, he looks like fucking Gaston if he were a werewolf. He's like this buff werewolf with this like lumberjack shirt on. And he just looks... But he's got really tiny little legs. And it's so funny. I think my... So talking of little characters, I think my favourite is the clown with the tearaway face. Yeah, he's pretty cool. Because he's... The design for him is really cool. All the vampires... Yeah, quite a lot of But let's be honest, the favourite... The best character in this film who is not a main player. So he's not Jack, Sally, Santa Claus already of that lot, is the mayor. Yeah. Also, we didn't mention the jazz band. Oh, the jazz band. The jazz band are pretty cool. Hey, Bone Daddy. What is that from? That's a bit alone in the film, because he calls Jack Bone Daddy when Jack's walking up the thing after the... of course it is. It's like he literally walks past him before he finds the tree and he goes, Hey, Bone Daddy. I remember now. Um, But obviously it is the mayor, who is the funniest character, I would say, in this film. And also is the peak level of two-faced politician. Yeah, he is like the Boris Johnson of this film. He is. There's also a great line when um, he says, I can't make any decisions here, I'm only an elected official. Yeah. <laughs> when Jack's missing, which I love, and is another reference to basically how politicians are. Yeah, he's a, he's a really good character. Like, the idea of him having the switchable heads is really interesting as well. Um... And yeah, like he's he's another character that's really cool, but he's not in it very often. No. Um, and like the thing is, there's so many cool side. Ca- I think like every character in this movie could be someone's favorite I would, character. I would, if you know what we talk about, a sequel. I would have 100 percent put my money on for a TV show that was just about like the the goings on in Halloween Town. So you got to meet all of the side characters and like what <laughs> they do in the other 364 days that are not fucking Halloween. <laughs> the real housewives of Halloween Town. The real housewives of Halloween Town. But yeah, I think the side characters, because when you look at Halloween Town, it feels like a lived in place. It does. Like it feels like this is a place that could exist, that could have like all of these weird, wonderful, wacky characters living in it. Um, 
And then, like, obviously, when we go to Christmas Town, yeah, we see like all the little elves. We see Santa Claus. We see like how those guys live. So we kind of get an insight into what, what Christmas Town is like. We meet the Easter Bunny for a little bit. Easter Bunny chills. He's Easter like there Bunny for a chills. second. Um, Easter Bunny is freaked out by the guy with the hatchet in yeah. his head. Um, <clears throat> but then, like, if we're moving on to like the main characters, mm-hmm. so let's start with the really easy ones. What do you think of the kids? Oh my god, I love the kids. Lock, Shock and Barrel are potentially my favourite characters. Because they're so... The thing is, it's like you look at them and they're definitely supposed to represent, like... See no evil, hear no evil, speak no evil. That's what no. I was, that's what I was going to say. No. They're supposed to just represent, like, general children. Mm. Like, how kids would behave. And I like that. Like, they're not really malicious. They're just... Little psychopaths, which is all children are, let's be honest. And they seem to have, like, a hierarchy as well. Like, so Shock I seems Shock to be is in the leader. leader. Locks her, like, right-hand man. And then Barrel and then is then the Barrel's one they just, just forced to do everything. Yeah. Barrel's like, Barrel's, like, the little brother that you get forced to take everywhere. Like, nobody really wants him there, and he's pretty fucking useless. But he's just there anyway. Mm-hmm. Um... And, like, they're not in the movie a lot, but... No. The thing... But they really <clears throat> make a splash when they are in the film. And I'm kind of not really sure. Like, this is one thing that I'm not really sure about the film. Because they seem to be scared of Oogie Boogie. So, kind of, like, the way I see the hierarchy of how the thing works is, like, they're, like, Fagin's gang, almost, yeah. from, like, Oliver. And Oogie Boogie is, like, Fagin. Mm. Like, he's got these, like, child workers that go out and do weird shit for him. But then, like, I don't know who has, like, hierarchy in Halloween Town, whether so, Jack is above Oogie Boogie yeah. or Oogie Boogie is above Jack, because they seem to be scared of Oogie Boogie, but they seem to be more scared so of I Jack. So feel, I feel like it's, you know, Jack is Jack is the king. He's the pumpkin king of Halloween Town. And Oogie Boogie is, like, that old guy who lives on the hill who's just constantly pissed off at everybody in town and he's hates old them man all. who yells at Cloud. Yeah, and he want, he's like, yeah, I just want them all dead and I want Jack gone. And he doesn't really seem intent on taking his job. No, I think he, he just, just hates it. I think he just hates everyone. To be fair, I don't think he particularly likes anybody. Plus, he seems to be imprisoned. Yeah. Like I don't think he can leave. Yeah, and I like. I'd I love to know the backstory. He's supposed to be imprisoned. Yeah, like I would love to know what's going on. Um, there. But yeah, I think pretty sure the kids work for Oogie Boogie, but maybe mostly out of fear. Yeah. Um, it is like a Fagan's gang situation. I yeah, think. but it is one of my favourite bits is when Jack gives them the job of going to get Sani Claus. And he's like, you leave that no good Oogie Boogie out of this. And then the minute Jack is like, go and put him somewhere safe, they're like, take him to Oogie Boogie. And I'm like, guys, fucking kids, man. But I love them. I, I, I really do. Like They are probably the characters I would get tattooed on me if I had a tattoo. Yeah. Of this film was I would have probably probably have shock tattooed on me because I like shock. Zero. That's fair. Um, yes. Now you said it. Like the scene, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, <clears throat> I'm gonna make. I'm gonna. This is gonna sound weird when I say it, but the scene where they take Santa Santa Claus to Santa Claus to Oogie Boogie reminds me of the scene from Return of the Jedi when Boba Fett turns up with. Han Solo in the You've Carbonite, lost me. and he delivers Han Solo in the Carbonite to Jabba the Hutt. Sure, kind of reminds me of that because Oogie Boogie kind of reminds me a little bit of Jabba the Hutt. That's fair. That's um, ho, ho, ho. So from there, let's go on to Oogie Boogie because he's kind of the next character on the list, really. Yeah, isn't he? I think he's cool. I love Oogie Boogie. Um, 
He, he reminds me of like an old timey gangster. Yeah, excuse me. So yeah, he kind of reminds me of a cross between Jabba the Hutt and Al Capone and Ursula because <laughs> he he has he has like because Ursula has that big soulful. She ringy, does like, have the big and, like. Jazz just the, like, you poor unfortunate souls. Yes, it's sad, but so true. And it's like when he strolls in, he's like, "I'm the oogie boogie man." It's kind of like that same energy. It's the, it's the entrance he makes when he comes to the door, and he's like, "Well, well, well, what have we here?" Yeah, it's that kind of same energy that they have. Yeah, they do have a very similar. Now you said it, they do have a really. But he also kind of reminds me of Doctor Facilier. Yeah. As we've discussed. Who's, an a, who's also an absolute G. He is an He's absolute G. He's the best thing about the Princess and the Frog. He really is. For real. Other than the sparkly butt bug. <laughs> bug. I don't know what he's called. I've only seen Princess and the Frog once. Yeah, it's not one of my favourites. No. Um, yeah, I think he's cool. Like, I think he's an intimidating villain. Um, I think... He's one of those villains that, that is scary but playful. But see, the problem with this movie is so Oogie Boogie is obviously supposed to be the villain of this yeah. film. There is no character that's not really the villain of yeah. this film except Sally. Yeah. Because Sally's the only one who's like, guys, maybe we shouldn't. Guys, should we stop? And everyone else is like, nah, screw her, weirdo. Like, nobody in this film is a good guy except Sally. Yeah, she's like the Lisa Simpson of Halloween Town. <laughs> Pretty much. Um... Yeah, Oogie Boogie's cool though, because like, and the thing is, like, because of his design, they do a lot of really interesting things with him. So, like, when he's got the bugs coming out of his eyes and then all the dice and stuff, and like, there's the scene where he's got Santa Claus and Sally tied up, and he like brings the playing cards to life, and they're all like actual. King, oh, when Houston Jack's like, chasing kings him. with the swords trying to cut him. And like, he, he kind of like is able to like bring his environment to life. Yeah. Um, and the bit where they like unpick him at the end, and he's like just a layer of bugs. And he's the one. I think the one little tiny green bug bug is, is actual actually Oogie Boogie, which yeah. Santa stands on. Is really fucking cool. Yeah. Um. So yeah, but he's he's one of those villains. My bugs, my bugs. He's one of those villains though, who's like so effortlessly fucking cool. You can't help. Like Ursula from yeah. fucking. You can't help but love her and, and him. Uh, Hades. Hades yeah. is another one from Hercules. He's so fucking lovable that you're like, he's a fucking prick, but I, I can't bring myself to hate him. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of characters like that. Disney's really good at creating villains that are like interesting and that you can't help but fall in love with. And I definitely think Oogie Boogie is one of those, like, he's about to do some fucked up shit. But oh, he's going to look cool while doing Also, it. he's so fucking horny. Oh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> he abandoned Santa for Sally's leg. I forgot about that scene. Yeah, he's so fucking horny. Like, when that leg comes out, he's, like, rubbing it, and he's all like, oh, yeah. He's like, hey, mama. He's like, he's like, I'm a fuck. Like, and I think I think the idea of, like, oh, like, cause, I mean, let's be honest, in Disney movies, there are horny characters. I mean, Ursula straight up fucking manages to get Ariel to sell her voice because she wants to boink a human. True. Like, true, 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 true. Like, fucking Ariel. The, the muses yeah. in, in Hercules. Yeah. Um, There's a few. There's a few straight up horny characters which yeah. I do love. Um, but yeah, he's like... And I find that as like... I find that as like a little aside. Him and the fucking fish woman. Because the fish woman in this movie is well fucking horny as well. Oh, when is it the witches as well? Yeah, when they're all trying to like... Oh, Jack. Yeah. And Jack's like, I am the bone daddy. He's He's like like, backing away slowly, clambering through a gate, like, bye, ladies. 
<laughs> but also at the same time, he's like, he's like, I'm the bone I'm daddy. daddy. He's like, I will bone down if I have to. Okay, so we talk about Oogie. Oh, I don't think we need to talk about Finkelstein too much. Like, he's just the... He's the mad scientist. Like. Yeah. Like, the only thing I will say about Finkelstein is it's never really clear what his motivations are. Yes. So I get it. He's a fucking... He, he, he kind of reminds me of Stephen Hawking a little bit. Mm. In the sense of, like, I think his design is kind of based a little bit on Stephen Hawking and, like, a mad scientist. Like, is it Henry the character? Like, the actual Dr. Frankenstein? Yeah. Henry Frankenstein, um, it? Victor Frankenstein. Victor, why should you think Henry? And um, weird. He, I just wish it was clearer what his relationship with Sally was like because I said to you, I was like, is Sally a sex doll or like who's meant to be his wife and his like servant or is she meant to be like his daughter? So like, this was the thing I was going to talk about. So it links back to Doctor Finkelstein being oogie boogie the whole time. Yeah. Dr. Finkelstein, that, mad that, scientist. That, that scene with her leg plays out well differently. <laughs> well differently. Um, but so basically, originally, the idea was that Sally had been created to be his wife. Mm-hmm. Dr. Finkelstein was very upset because she was more obsessed with Jack. Yeah. And wasn't interested in him. So he creates Oogie Boogie to basically try and go up against Jack to kill him so he can have Sally to himself. Really fucking dark, guys. Just putting it out there. But we see um, Tim Burton didn't like that, put his fucking foot through a wall. <laughs> Never <laughs> happened. Lad. Um, but no, she, she's supposed to be more like a daughter mm-hmm. to him in the context of the film than a wife. Yeah. But when he recreates her new, she's definitely his wife, right? Yeah, because he doesn't recreate Sally at the end. He no, has he like creates a, a new... Yeah, he has like a Lady Finkelstein. Yeah. Who's like pushing him about in his wheelchair. And she has half his brain. Yeah, which is kind of weird. Like, um, yeah, Finkelstein's a, a gross character. Like, he's he's a weird, like, comes across as a bit of a sexual predator. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just a fucking horny, evil dude in a wheelchair. So let's talk about our two main protagonists of this film. Also, Santa Claus absolutely fucks in this movie. Santa Claus isn't amazing. But he's not really, he, he gets no, kidnapped. He's a, he's a G. So, do you want to start with Jack or Sally? Uh, let's start with Jack. Start with Jack. Okay, so, Jack, who is the main protagonist of this film, and is apparently the good guy of the film? <laughs> Man tries to steal Christmas, has somebody kidnapped and held hostage, destroys Christmas, and then goes, oh, my bad. See, the problem with Jack is twofold. So Jack Jack's story arc in this movie is the classic case of good intentions gone wrong. Because he doesn't realise that what he's doing is actually bad. Yeah. He thinks that he he he's become bored of Halloween Town, he falls in love with Christmas, and he wants to share in the joy of Christmas. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that given the gifts, because even though the gifts are weird things that come from his time and what he would give to people as gifts, he doesn't understand like, his understanding of Christmas is very limited. So he thinks that he's doing exactly what he should be. Yeah. And then it fucking blows up in his face. Yeah. The problem with Jack is he has really, really good intentions. But for Poor the most... execution. Yeah. But for the most part, he's a fucking stubborn, narcissistic arsehole who makes everything about him. And he ignores Sally when she tells him that she has a vision of everything going wrong. He doesn't really care because this is the this is the other thing about this movie is he discovers Christmas, 
But at no point does he think, I'll bring Christmas to Halloween Town. No, he, he just I'll he, steal Christmas. He just hijacks Christmas. He just fucks off to someone else's land and just decides to partake in in Christmas with them. And I'm like, the the whole point should be that you you're bring bringing Christmas, Christmas to, the, to, to your... Halloween Town. Yeah. And that's kind of like what the movie leads you to believe for like a good 15 to 20 minutes. I think if they'd gone that route, it would have been a little bit more of an in- an interesting film. And it's weird to say that in retrospect, given the amount of times I've seen this film. But yeah, like his whole plan to have Christmas doesn't make any sense because he's getting everyone in Halloween Town to make presents for him. He's got a countdown for Christmas. He gets his little skelly reindeer and then he just fucks off to like Christmas Town. It's like... No, he doesn't fuck off to Christmas Town. Yeah. No. He goes to Christmas Town when he's doing the Christmas with the Christmas presents. No, he goes to the real world. Oh, real world, sorry. Well, he goes wherever he goes. <laughs> he goes to the real world. So, uh, yeah, sorry. He goes to the... So, because what I'm assuming is that during Halloween, all of the monsters that live in Halloween Town go into the real world. Yeah. And they t- partake in Halloween. Like, that's what they do. And then, like, they come back at the end of Halloween. Yeah. It's over and they celebrate that they had a really good Halloween and then it starts all over again the next year. So, I assume what Jack was like was like... Oh well, I'll just do Christmas now because I want to do something else. So like, I kind of get it, but yeah, it would make more sense if he'd have brought Christmas to Halloween Town than. Which is kind of what the end of the movie implies. Yes, it starts that they get Christmas snowing and stuff like that. Yeah, because Santa brings them Christmas. Because that would have been made it way easier if you come to Santa and be like, "Look, could you maybe bring Christmas to like, the other worlds? We've not we've not had Christmas he's before." Like, he's kind like Santa. Can you bring some of that premium white stuff for me and the boys? Yeah, very much. Yeah, Jack's Jack's a funny character because I remember, like, as a kid, I loved Jack because you're supposed to love Jack. Like, that's the point of him. But, like, the older I've got, I I feel like it's a lot with any film like this. Like, the older that you get, the more you're like, that was a bit of a dick move. Like, the older I've got, when I watch Little Mermaid now, the scene where Mm. she's like, but daddy, I love him. I'm like, bitch, you're fucking 15. You've met him for, like, five seconds. Go get back in your room. And, like, I'm like, oh, my God, I'm King Troyan. (laughs) Jack is an absolute fuckboy. Oh, yeah, he's he's a fuckboy. He's well aware of how in love with him that Sally is. So this is the problem. Going into Jack and Sally's relationship before we talk about Sally, is we're supposed to believe that they're really good friends. As a kid, you don't question it. As an adult, they don't do enough building to make you believe that Jack and Sally are, like, really good friends. Yeah. Also, I feel like Blink-182 lied to everyone. We'll have Halloween and Christmas. We'll live like Jack and Sally. No! That's not a relationship you want to have. But the thing is, though, is I think we're supposed to believe that they're really good friends and it's kind of like they're all best friends who've become a couple. But because this is a film aimed at kids, they kind of skip over a lot of the things that are, like, that's really cute. Oh, look, they're best friends. That's really sweet. In more of like a, we'll put a fun song in, we'll kidnap Santa Claus, like we'll do all this other stuff. Because it is a kids' film at the end of the day, yeah, and kids don't give a shit about all of that stuff. They want fun stuff to happen and fun songs to be going on. Like, they don't really. Like, you look at any Disney film, like, the princess falls in love with the prince at first sight. Mm-hmm. Like, they don't bother with all the, like, preamble bullshit that adults like in their films. Um, but yeah, it does. It does. It is interesting watching it as a grown up because you're like, yeah, you, there's, there's no sign that like Jack has any feelings for her whatsoever until the end of this film. Yeah. But I think they're supposed to be like better because he references them being close like two or three times in the film. Yeah, and the thing is as well, like he seems oddly chummy with Finkelstein for a dude who's like fucking keeping his best mate prisoner. 
Because he like rocks up at his house. He's like, yeah, bro. I but I don't know if like... Jack knows what's going on with Sally. Yeah. He's like, like, she need... never seems to address the fact with him. She just... He's like, I need to borrow some science shit. And he's mm. all like, all right, cool. Yeah, I don't think Sally ever tells him like what's going on. Also, there's a weird scene in this movie where Finkelstein fingers his own brain. Yes, he scratches his own brain. Which is fucking weird. Like, flips his head up, scratches his own brain. But let's talk about Sally, who, let's be honest, is the hero of this film. I mean, Sally's, Sally's like every typical archetypal alternative goth girl I met in my like, late teens, early 20s. Okay. She's one of those, like... She's the only character in this movie who truly feels like an outsider, mm-hmm. which is fucking weird to say because this is a movie with about like out, it's literally yeah, a movie it's about, outsiders. about outsiders. But she she never feels like I think a large part of the problem with Sally's characterization is you never see her really interact with any of the characters. Mm-hmm. So even in the scenes where she's in the square with the other characters, She's never really talking to anyone. So, like nobody is, seems to acknowledge who she is. This is the interesting thing with Sally. So I'll get into why I love Sally in a second. But I think that's kind of the point is Sally is supposed to be like the constant outsider. She's not supposed to go anywhere without Finkelstein. So she won't have built these relationships that you were expected to have, except apparently with Jack. Like she's really the only person she interacts with. There there are times when I've watched this movie where I'm like, is it entirely possible? That she is a figment of his imagination. I don't think so. Because I was like, there are... Finkelstein interacts with her. Yeah, but this is what I'm like. This is what I mean. Like, you kind of wonder in certain aspects of this film where she doesn't interact with anybody else. Whether like Jack and Finkelstein are the only two people who know I'm, who she is. I'm gonna just disagree with that because I don't think that's true. I think she's just she right. So right. There's a reason I love Sally and there's a reason that she pisses me off to a degree. Sally only interacts with people that is necessary for the plot to continue. Yeah. So she only really interacts with Jack and she interacts with Santa Claus as well, actually. And Oogie Boogie. So Mm. she can't be a figment of imagination. But she only really interacts with people that's necessary for the plot to move forward. Yeah. On the other hand, the reason I love Sally is Sally actually has, for a girl in a Disney film, quite a lot of self-sufficiency. Yeah. She escapes from the first time we meet her, she escapes from Finkelstein. No problem. She's she just poisoning. straight up she like undoes her arm and runs away. Yeah. Uh she poisons him at one point. She throws herself from a window because she knows she'll survive yeah. it and she's figured out how to she carries things to sew yeah. herself back together. Like she really is a character who has quite a lot of self sufficiency. And for a female Disney character in the early nineties it's pretty forward, to be honest. Yeah, but also, do you not find that she is the typical Tim Burton female protagonist in the sense of, if you look at all of the... I know this isn't a Tim Burton movie, but it's characters created by... If you look at all the characters that are females, for the most part, in Tim Burton's movies, they all have a sense of agency and they yeah. all have a sense of, like... Oh, yeah, and the, the thing, thing is, as well, are. the same with Henry Selleck. Yeah. Henry, um, yeah, Henry Selleck. And, like, if you watch Coraline or you watch James and the Giant Peach, like, the female characters do have quite a lot of agency. But I think that's part of the reason that I love this film so much as a kid, is that the female character, instead of just being the weak damsel who's like, oh, my God, no. She constantly is trying to stop Jack. Yeah. Like, she helps him, but she's always there at his ear going, this seems like a really bad idea, Jack. Like, you shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. 
And he's like, no, it's fun. And she's like, are you sure? Because this seems like a really bad fucking idea. Mm-hmm. And like when she thinks he's got her, she goes to Oogie Boogie's to try and save Santa. Mm-hmm. Like of her own accord. And she faces off with who is basically the big bad of Halloween Town on her own with no backup to try and save Santa. Mm-hmm. Like, she's a strong-ass woman. I don't understand why she would be in love with Jack, though. I like, think, that's my main question I mark like, the I take thing from is, this movie. Is, so, as we said, they don't really address the fact that they're apparently really close. But I think part of it is he's the only one who seems to treat her like she's just another normal member of the community. Mm-hmm. Most of them seem to ignore her. She's a slave, as far as Finkelstein is concerned. And Jack seems to be the only one who kind of addresses her as just, like, she's a normal person. Because she's not, for a, a world that is full of monsters, she's not human. Yeah. She was created in a lab by Finkelstein. Which might be part of the reason that some of the characters don't interact with her. Because, as far as they're concerned, she's just a stuffed doll. Yeah. Whereas, I think Jack treats her like a normal person. And, uh, as I said, like, from conversations that ha- and words that are spoken, like, they are supposed to be very close. Mm-hmm. So it's the trope of falling in love with your best friend, I guess. Yeah. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna like the last weird wild piece of thing we're gonna talk about mm-hmm. for this movie, the Corpse Bride, Nightmare Before Christmas connection mm-hmm. of Victor and the dog dying and becoming Jack and Zero. Is mm-hmm. that the right way around? So it's Frankenweenie and his owner become Victor and his dog, who then die and become Jack and Zero. Yes or no? I think it's a cute idea. But I think they're purely basing it on the fact that all of the characters' Tim Burton designs look vaguely similar. Yeah. And that's just how Tim Burton draws people, like... I don't really think it holds any weight, and I don't really think the connection... I think it's a cute idea. Yeah. But, yeah, no. I think the only thing I want to say about this... So I owned the 20th century... The 20th century? The 20th anniversary edition of this when I was a kid. Kid, teenager. On DVD... I don't know if you had... Did you ever get the DVD release? So I got the very first DVD release. So did you get... I don't know if you had on there the bonus films. Yeah. The Frankenweenie short. And so I don't know if anyone... I'm sure anyone... they made Frankenweenie into a lot of real... They did. They made it into a full-length film. But that's not what I want to talk about. On there, there is a film called Victor. Mm Mm-hmm. And as much as I love Night Before Christmas, and I do, I think that is my favourite thing to come from the Night Before Christmas DVD. Wait, hang on. Wasn't the kid called Vincent? This is Vincent, the, is sorry. This the one yeah. where he's like... Vincent Malloy was a strange little boy who yeah. thought his name was Vincent Price, yeah. And it's basically about a kid who's obsessed with Vincent Price and wants to be mm-hmm. Vincent Price. And it is, yeah, the little boy's called Vincent Malloy. Yeah. And they reference, like, um, Ele- is it Eleanor? Mm-hmm. Uh, the Raven... They reference loads of Edgar Allan Poe stuff. Yeah. And as much as I love Nightmare, I think that's my favourite thing that ever came from that Blu-ray release was seeing Victor. Vincent, fuck me. (laughs) (sighs) Because if you haven't seen it, you can probably find it on YouTube. It's literally like a five minute short. Yeah, it's not very long at all. It's not very long. I would highly recommend going and watching it because I'm pretty sure it's also voiced by Vincent Price. He reads the story. And it's literally about a strange little boy who's obsessed with Vincent Price, and it's my favourite thing. Because, um, uh, yeah, this was the... I, I had the car... I had the limited edition collector's thing in, like, a cardboard case. It was... When I bought my Blu-ray... Uh, not my Blu-ray, my DVD player, it was one of the first films that had, like, come out after I bought it. 
I think I remember going to HMV and buying that and the first Fast and Furious movie on Blue on <laughs> DVD enough. on the same day. Fair enough. But yeah, so let's get to our ratings. How many acts are you giving Night Before Christmas, babe? I am giving The Nightmare Before Christmas five pumpkin noses out of five. I'm, go- I'm going for my boy Zero because a little pumpkin nose. And I am going to give it... Five Skeleton Kings out of five Skeleton Kings. This movie, it fucking rules. It's so much fun. Like, and the thing is, it's, no matter what you can say against it, I think a massive part of the scoring for this will always be nostalgia. Yeah. Because everyone in the alternative community grew up watching it. Yeah, and I think that's part of the problem. I think people are really scared to go back and watch this movie or say that they like this movie because it has been so co-opted by the mainstream and by all kinds of different people in different scenes and different cultures that people are scared to say they like it now because it became such a massive thing and people don't want to just be seen as like chasing a trend or, oh, you only like it because it's cool or because of blah, yeah. blah, blah. And then there's like, like me, you and Brad from work who are just there like, yeah, fucking Nightmare Before Christmas. Yeah, and I was like, no, like I will always remember like watching this movie as a kid and to me it's one of those like, it's one of those movies like, I liked it before the world liked it. So therefore, I'm not going to stop liking it mm. just because the world liked it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, like, it's a weird movie to kind of think about in context now of, like, where the world is with, like, animation and, like, you know, content that you can show children. But the thing like, is, at what I age think... do you think would be appropriate to show this to a child? I reckon you could show this to a five-year-old. Yeah, five, six. Yeah. Easily. Easily. Like, it's not that scary, but it's, like, just got enough terror that it's, like, kind of a nice little, like, intro to the... It's more of, like, an intro to the monsters than anything else. Yeah. And um, I think that's really cute. It's just the idea of, like, this is, like, your first introduction to things like vampires and the wolfman, Gilman, because although it is fish lady, she looks like Gilman. And who else is in it? Like... There's a lot of classic monsters. Yeah, there's a lot of like nice references to like other Tim Burton movies. Like, there's a sandworm from Beetlejuice in it. There's the evil duck from, from Batman. Batman. Yeah, there's references to the Adams family. Some of the kids, like, one of the kids looks like Pudsley. There's a, a doll getting guillotined at one point as well, which is a reference to Wednesday. So, like, there's a lot of references in. Also, I'm pretty sure, was Henry Selick involved in Adam's Family? Don't think so, no. One of the people who worked on this, I think potentially the screenwriter, mm-hmm. was involved in Yeah, because Tim Burton Family. was going to make it at one point. Um, and then they, now he's doing the Wednesday TV show. Yeah, I'm pretty confident, if I remember correctly, I think it is the lady who wrote it, Caroline Thompson. Yeah, so she wrote uh, The Adam's Family, mm-hmm. the film, Yeah, this one. Because he's doing the TV series where Jenna Ortega is playing Wednesday. Yeah. She quite wrote cool. quite a bit. She wrote, not quite a bit, but she wrote Edward Scissorhands. She wrote Corpse Bride, wrote Nightmare, and wrote Adam's Family. Nice. Yeah, because Tim Burton was originally in the running to direct Adam's Family, and then he didn't. And oh. Barry Sonnenfeld directed both of them, who made the Men in Black movies. Fair enough. But yeah, yeah just a note. Caroline Thompson wrote... Quite, oh, she wrote City of Ember as well. I like that nice. film. Just a side note. Sorry, guys. I like so, City of Ember. Yeah, I think this movie has stood the test of time and mm. will continue to stand the test of time. And I think the fact as well, like the other the other piece of longevity that this movie's got is 
outside of all the merchandising and like the fact that it's on streaming services and people have a lot of access to it and stuff is the fact that they continue to tour it i think the touring of it has given this because it's given people a whole new experience so it comes (laughs) over to the uk every now and then danny elfman brings it over but i know that recently he did some shows at the hollywood bowl and he had like Catherine O'Hara there. He had Paul Rubens. He had basically the whole cast. He had like uh, Billie Eilish came out and did mm-hmm. a couple of the Sally songs with him. Because um, him and Billie Eilish did Simply Meant to Be Together, which is amazing. And she was dressed like Sally. And I think to, I think that's kind of what has kind of given this film another lease on life. Is the fact that you can watch it and then hear it and see it. And, you know, it's one of those movies that... We say it a lot, and we've said it a lot over the last year when we've talked about films. It's one of those like generational movies. Like it came along at a time when I think it got an audience at the right time, mm-hmm. and then it's just been passed on from generation to generation to generation. And I think that's... yeah, it's the kind of film like, I shared it with my brothers. Yeah. When we have kids, I'll share it with our kids. And I like... think that's the film's enduring legacy. Is it's as much as it's a great film with a great cast and great characters and all of those other things that you could say about this film, it's that enduring legacy of being passed down. Mm. Like how, when we've talked about other films, like how a film like The Evil Dead was passed down or like Scream was passed down. You know, and the thing is, there's not a lot of family-friendly horror movies. And I think this is... I don't know. I think since we've like started doing this, I've I've found my brain finding loads of family-friendly horror films. I'm like, oh shit, yeah, that is technically a horror as well. Like, oh yeah, that's a horror movie as well, technically. (laughs) From a certain point of view. But no, no, for like a kid, I'm talking as like a... It's not scary for me, but for like a child, that would be a a horror movie. Mm. So, like we were saying earlier, like Corpse Bride. For me, not scary at all, but for a kid, it's kind of a horror film. Tim Burton's Child in the Chocolate Factory horror movie <laughs> i mean the original, the original charlie and the chocolate factory is there's a horror no film. signs of slowing <laughs> that whole sequence gets mm. the shit out of me right Fucking nightmares man that's our thoughts on the nightmare before, before christmas, christmas. Uh, we will be back next monday on the 3rd of january with our first film of 2022 which is gonna be pan's labyrinth or I think as it's called in Spanish, El Labyrinth Forno. There you go. Stay tuned for more Spanish lessons next week when we're talking chorizo. I mean, let's not. Let's not. Because if I do Spanish on this and fuck it up, you know full well I'll get a call the following day from Nicole being like, what the fuck did you think you were doing? Chorizo and paella. <laughs> paella. And, and men with eyes in all of the hands. Um, so yeah next week we are kicking off 2022 we are kicking off our foreign language month with pan's labyrinth we hope you guys have had a safe christmas we hope you continue to have a safe new year we will see you all in 2022 stay safe and we out bye oh yeah (laughs) i mean do you want to do it okay so find us on instagram and twitter at s Instagram at S I A M H Pod. That's on top. That's on Twitter. On Twitter and on Instagram, Instagram and Tumblr. Tumblr at So I Married a Horror Fan. All one word, all lowercase. There you go. Boom. Did it? Finally did it. Woof, woof, I did woof, it. Woof, woof. Also, it's only taken a year. <laughs> if you listen to this on Spotify, Spotify now has a rating system. Really, really simple. You'll notice under our name, there's a little star. Yeah, so you just press five. So if you just click, <laughs> if you click the star, you can give us a rating out of five. 
um, it will take a couple of seconds and it would be greatly appreciated. But yeah, take care, guys, and we'll see you next week. In the new week. year. Me, 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 me. Bye.